This is an ABC podcast. A very strange thing happened at the beginning of 2020. I'm sure you remember. How could you forget? The world went from this... ...to this. Or did it? The pandemic has done weird things to so many aspects of our lives, including our sense of sound. Just ask Tin Oberman. Everybody was asking me, are birds now singing louder? Or is it just that now we can hear them better? <laughs> and I don't have a definite answer to that. But definitely the whole phenomenon changed the way that people were perceiving sound. It made everyone aware of sound. So people who don't usually think about how things sound, now they started noticing. Dr Oberman was part of a research team at University College London and they took samples from different European cities during the initial global lockdown when it seemed the world had emptied of cars and people. And then they compared them to noise levels recorded prior to the pandemic. The result? I would say it was the reduction itself was lower than myself I would perceive. My feeling was that it got incredibly quiet. But when we did the measurements, I mean, some locations did go down by like 10 or 11 dB, which is like, it is a huge difference. But all in all, the reduction was around maybe 5, and some cities reported even less of a reduction. The thing that is actually driving background noise in cities is, is certainly traffic. So when you measure lots of locations and do the averages and combine all of those, the thing that really makes a difference is, after all, traffic. The more things change, the more they stay the same, it seems. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. Welcome to Future Tense. Better understanding our relationship with noise and sound. That's our topic today. You know, sound is under-recognised and under-appreciated because it's invisible. You know, yet sound has, just like, like a visual object, has a shape, a size, a colour, a texture. Sound also has ingredients. It has pitch, timbre, harmonics, phase, loudness. There are so many ingredients in sound that the brain needs to make sense of. Our first perspective is from Nina Krauss, a neurobiologist and professor of communication sciences at Northwestern University in the United States. The sound brain is vast in that it engages how we think and how we feel, how we move, and how we integrate information from our other senses. All of that is part of the hearing brain. And really traditionally, we look at different brain functions in kind of a, an isolated, siloed manner. And yet the hearing brain is tremendously interconnected with almost every important brain function. The sounds of our lives shape who we are, beginning with the languages we speak, the music we make, how much and the quality of you know, people talking with us, the noise that we live with. All of these aspects of sound very much change. What is really fascinating to me, you know, as a biologist, you can really see how 
neurons fire in response to sound. So the sound is the same, the neuron is the same, but when you make sound to meaning connections, the sounds of our lives, that changes us. Which is interesting, isn't it? Because we're used to the idea that we're shaped by society, by those who are around us, by the community we live in. But from what you're saying then, we also have what sort of individual sound bubbles that shape the way we are or help to shape the way we are. Yes. And in fact, you know, we can actually see and hear this. You know, as I'm I'm talking to you now, the neurons in your brain are producing electricity. And with scalp electrodes, we can measure that electricity. And I can see that your response to a particular speech sound or music or whatever it is, your brain response to that sound is going to be different from mine, is going to be different from everybody else's. So, you know, you can still recognize it as, say, the sentence that was spoken, but it will be shaped differently just based on what your brain has become based on your life and sound. And how do the sounds of the past, how do they influence us in our daily lives, the memory of those sounds? So, you know, in many ways, we are our memories. You know, we have the, the common phrase, it, it's so good to hear the sound of your voice. You know, why is that? From a biological perspective, this is so true. Different people are going to react to the same sound in a different manner with respect to how their brain makes sense of sound. So I think of the brain as, you know, each one of us has the faders on a mixing board set differently based on the parts of sound that are important to us and that we have learned to tune or reduce. So sound is powerful and it's influential, but why is sound so influential from an evolutionary perspective? Hearing is one of the first senses to evolve. And even if if you look at vertebrates, you know, there are blind vertebrates. You do not find any deaf vertebrates. The ability to hear has always signaled, you know, is, is this danger? Is this something that is going to eat me? Is this something I can eat? Is this a mate? Sound has always been very much a sense that is very important for thriving and for survival, for our very, very survival. Our hearing is always on, even if we're not paying attention to a sound. And the absence of sound? Silence? Where does that fit in? Well, you know, there's hardly ever silence. You know, often people think of noise as unwanted sound. And silence, I mean, we need silence. It works with sound because the silence, the the space between the notes in music, it helps us understand where our intent is, where the words stop and start. You know, silence is as much a part of the sound that is around it. But then there is also just the silence of not having unwanted sound and being able to let our brains go and think their thoughts without being squeezed by something that is influencing our thinking, whether we know it or not. We know that with urban design, the way our cities, suburbs and houses are are shaped and designed, there's much more of an emphasis now on things like airflow and light in order to make for healthier communities. Is the same starting to happen with sound? Are we starting to look at sound and, and try and factor that in? Not 
that much. I mean, yes, there is a little bit of that going on. But, you know, again, because sound is invisible and there's so many sounds, there's so many noises that just don't have to be there that we can change. But people have to decide that this is important. And if we understand, I mean, I know this is the way I work, that if I understand something and, and if I can explain to people how it is that unwanted noise, for example, has a negative effect on our health, you know, once you get that, you don't have to tell the, the person twice. You know, they really get it. And so I'm hoping that it's a matter of, of people becoming more aware of it. So I, I think that eventually this will be the case. But for the moment, it's really under thought of. Neurobiologist Nina Krauss. Now, for Erica Walker, an epidemiologist at Brown University School of Public Health, sound also has a social equity dimension. We may not pay that much attention to the noises around us, she says, but they play a crucial role in defining who we are. They speak of culture and class and discrimination. People look at noise as one of those sacrifices that we have to make because we have this desire to live close to all of these urban activities. You know, if you want to walk out and be steps away from the theater district or right next to a train line to make a direct commute to your office, our acoustical soundscape is what we have to give up or what we have to sacrifice in order to get those things. And I also feel like we believe that when we kind of lay out all of the issues that we have as a city, as a society, I think when we order them in order of importance, noise is one of those things that just doesn't fall in the top five or top 10 issues. You know, when you're talking about more hot button issues like climate change or air pollution or racism, you know, noise isn't traditionally thought as one of those things that stands out at the top, but it's one of those environmental stressors that is definitely related to a bunch of both physical and social issues in our communities. And so I just kind of find that the things that are more likely to cause noise pollution, like an industrial plant, or a entertainment venue will probably fly more easily in a poor neighborhood where people just don't have the resources or the time or the energy to fight back as opposed to a wealthier neighborhood. Many urban areas, particularly in Western countries, have undergone gentrification in recent decades. How has that impacted upon the way in which noise is distributed, if you like, throughout a city, an urban area? So I worked in a community a couple of years ago, a neighborhood in in Boston called Mission Hill, and it was dealing with the ramifications of gentrification. So in one way, it can actually change the physical structure of your neighborhood, which changes the way sound propagates through your neighborhood. At one time, you had a house that had a back porch and it overlooked the city. You know, gentrification brings in new construction in some cases, and you're getting a new construction where now you're overlooking another building that has a big HVAC system that you're looking at now from in front of your front porch and we get buildings and it just changes the way the sound propagates through the environment. It also brings in activities that produce more noise. So, you know, there's more restaurants and more entertainment activities that used to not be there before. And I think one thing that's really interesting is that it changes the acoustical expectations of the environment. So usually there are the the old timers, the original people in the neighborhood, and they sort of have an understanding about how their neighborhood should sound. Maybe they play basketball in the park in the evenings. Maybe they grill and have 
you know, cookouts on the weekend, or they play their music from their windows, or they have cars that play loud music, and that has been the expectations of the community. But as the gentrification people move in, the gentrifiers move in, they have another set of beliefs about how the community should sound. So maybe they think that it should be a lot quieter. We're paying a lot more money for our homes. We want more quiet. So there's this sort of standoff between the newcomers and the old timers. And that sort of tussle with the acoustical expectation sort of brings about a lot of conflict in the communities. Which speaks to, yes, it speaks to the idea of change, but it also speaks to the idea of, of cultural differences, doesn't it? Cultural dimensions to our soundscapes. Oh, absolutely. Like I give the perfect example that happened in Washington, D.C. So there's a neighborhood there where the, one of the cultural practices of the neighborhood was to play this, this music. It's called go-go music, which is sort of like a mixture of rhythm and blues and funk music. And the expectation was that people would just, you know, play it from their stoops or play it from their windows and these big boom boxes. And that was just the acceptable norm. But as the neighborhood began to be gentrified, the gentrifiers wanted more peace and quiet. And they began to call the police. They began to make moves within the city to get that kind of music shut down and were successful in getting that shut down. So yes, gentrifiers, because they're paying more, because they're moving into a city, because they're moving into a neighborhood, they sort of have these expectations and they usually have the money to bend the community to their will. And they end up, they usually end up being pretty successful with it. The interesting part of this story in Washington, D.C. is that the old timers were able to band together to get some of their cultural practices restored, but it didn't come without a lot of community tension. So what we know or what we considered to be bad noise or perhaps noise pollution, is it's a highly subjective thing, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, as researchers, as regulators, as city officials, as urban planners, we sort of only focus on how loud sound is, but noise is defined as unwanted sound. And that aspect of what is unwanted is extremely subjective. And it's something that you can't really ascertain unless you get out into the communities and and actually measure it and talk to community members about what those things are. And we as researchers, we tend to eliminate that part altogether, even though it's very central to what noise is. And as an epidemiologist, you know, I see these studies where epidemiologists are like taking the sound levels and assuming that's the relevant exposure and making these really gigantic claims about how it's impacting our health when they have very superficially measured what community noise is. Does that speak to the distinction that you make between what you call felt noise and heard noise? (laughs) Yeah, yes. Heard noise is just what we sort of process through our auditory system. But felt noise are those types of noises that can sort of reverberate through your body. I know we've all have been at a concert or some place where we've been listening to this music and it literally reverberates through your body. You can feel it in your chest. You can sort of feel it moving over your skin. We don't really talk about that kind of noise. We definitely don't make its measurement a regular part of our regulation and maintenance uh, protocols. But it's something that we very much feel. It's something that travels very long distances. It's something that can penetrate through walls. It's something that's routinely highlighted by community members as being something unwanted, but we sort of just ignore it and just only focus on how loud things are or only focus on the things that we hear. So felt noise can be the character of the sound that we're experiencing like that 
vibration through your chest, but it also could be, you know, your attitudes, your feelings, your perceptions about the noise in your community, your your felt experiences that we don't really take into consideration at all, which I think is one of the beautiful things about noise exposure is that there's this physical part that is dictated by these laws of math and physics. And there's also this very subjective kind of individualized experience that requires us as researchers to get out into the communities and understand what it is. Assistant Professor Erica Walker, an epidemiologist at Brown University School of Public Health. You're listening to Future Tense. I'm Anthony Fennell, and today, a series of perspectives on sound and noise and how it can shape our lives and our future. Our final guest today, Professor Kirsten Paris, has a bit of a thing for frogs and amphibians more generally. Her research has looked at the effect of noise pollution on animals. As our cities get busier and noisier, she says, many species are struggling to adapt. Many animals are very responsive to noise in the environment and many animals use sound to communicate with each other. So if we think about the impacts of unwanted sound, which we can define as noise, if we think about the impacts of noise on wildlife, it falls into a few different categories. So first of all, like people, animals can experience physiological stress if they're living in environments that are very noisy. And this has been shown across lots of different animal groups as well as in people. Then we have the situation where noise makes it difficult for animals to hear each other. And if we think about birdsong or frogs calling or whales singing under the ocean, noise in terrestrial environments, so on land, and also in aquatic environments, in freshwater and marine environments, noise in all those areas impacts on the animals that use sound to communicate by making it more difficult for them to hear each other. And there can be flow-on effects for ecosystems, can't there? I mean, if an animal finds it so distressing, so difficult to operate in a particular area and moves on, if they actually were one of the key species in that ecosystem, that can have greater ramifications, can't it? That's right. So for animals that are sensitive to high levels of noise, there are just large areas of the landscape now that aren't suitable for them. And we know from studies of birds that sometimes a bird will occupy a noisy territory because they don't really have another choice. And we know that that leads to all sorts of effects on them as individuals and as populations. So it reduces breeding success. It makes it more difficult for male birds to attract a mate and to maintain a pair bond and successfully fledge their chicks, for example. Why is that? Is that because they simply don't hear the mating calls? It happens at all the different stages through the process from initial mate attraction. So male birds often sing to attract females for mating. And the characteristics of that song, how complex it is, how deep the voice of the male bird is, things like that, provides information to the females that help them choose a mate. And then, say, 
a female is attracted and decides to mate with a male bird, they need to maintain a social bond known as a pair bond so they can operate together as parents. And if they can't hear each other well, then that pair bond can break down. There's evidence also, isn't there, that animals can be more vulnerable. They can be more susceptible to attack from predators because of noise pollution. That's right. So animals that use hearing to detect the approach of predators, if they're in a noisy environment and they can't hear a predator approaching, then they change their behaviour. They become more vigilant. They'll spend more time looking around, looking for danger and less time eating, for example, and that can lead to other impacts on their fitness. So if you don't spend enough time eating to get sufficient food for yourself and your family, then that's another negative effect of noise on wildlife. Is it a mistake when we talk about the effect of noise on animals? Is it a mistake to simply think of it in terms of loudness, in terms of decibels? Well, that's certainly an important component of noise, but the frequency distribution of the noise is also important. If you think about a noisy environment where you might go, such as a pub or a nightclub where there's lots of background noise and it's the low frequency bass, the doof, 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 that will particularly impact on low frequency sound. So if you're speaking to your friend with a low pitched voice, you might not be able to hear them, but someone with a high squeaky voice can. And it's the same for urban noise, particularly road traffic noise tends to be very concentrated in those lower frequency bands. So if you're a bigger animal, a bigger frog or a bigger bird, and you sing or call in those low registers, you're impacted more than the smaller squeaky guys are. How difficult is it to monitor and research the effect of noise pollution on animals? That's an interesting question. It depends what aspect of it you're interested in. I think there are some really clever studies now that have shown impacts by looking at at paired sites, sites that are more or less the same as each other, except one's noisy and one's quiet. But often in a city where you have a lot of noise, you have other impacts on the environment as well. You might have more light pollution at nighttime. You might have more chemical pollution more people physically moving around. So sometimes it's difficult to separate the effect of noise from those other effects that are confounded or correlated with the noise. We know that animals adapt over time. Is there any evidence to suggest that species are starting to adapt because of human-induced noise? There are a lot of studies now that show that acoustically communicating animals, so animals that communicate with sound, are changing their acoustic behaviour. So lots of studies now showing that birds sing differently in noise. They might sing at a higher pitch, so they're moving their signal, their call or song up the frequency spectrum to make it easier to hear in the low frequency noise and frogs can do that as well. Birds might sing at a different time of day and there's a very famous study from the UK that showed a particular species of bird was singing in the middle of the night when normally it would have been asleep but they're choosing that quiet window when traffic volumes are really low to communicate with each other. So there are behavioural changes we can observe, but in many cases they will help the frog or the bird or the whale 
a little bit, but generally they're not able to overcome the noise altogether. So they just get a little bit of their communication distance back, but not all the distance that they've lost. So what are some positive steps we could take to improve the situation? Well, if we had a wholesale switch to electric vehicles, that would help, although it wouldn't entirely remove road noise because some of our road noise, particularly where cars are travelling at high speeds on a freeway, comes from the sound of the tyres on the road rather than the engine itself. I think one way ahead would be to recognise better the negative effects of noise on wildlife and act to protect our non-human friends accordingly. At the moment, there's legislation to protect people from excessive noise, and that's why we see sound barriers along freeways and things, but there's still no legislation to protect animals from noise. And I think that that would be certainly something to consider in places where noise levels are very high, such as in cities, or where we might have populations of threatened species that we want to protect in particular from high levels of human-generated noise. And are you hopeful that we will be more responsive to the issue and, and start to look at those kind of solutions in a more deliberate way? I'm always hopeful, but I've been suggesting this approach for some time now, and it hasn't really caught on in many circles. I think that now we're starting to see the impact of noise considered in environmental impact assessments and other sorts of studies that are done prior to the construction of a new road or where a new housing development might be going near the habitat of a species of particular concern. Usually that will only occur where uh, the species is listed as threatened under the federal legislation, the EPBC Act, but sometimes it also happens under state legislation. So I think we're working towards it. And one way to perhaps speed that up is to also increase people's understanding of the negative impacts of noise on people too. For example, it's probably not widely known that exposure to high levels of noise impacts on male fertility in humans. So there are a number of studies now showing that the high stress levels associated with very noisy environments can affect the endocrine system, our hormone system, which can then lead to drops in the relative hormones that would lead to you know, the production of healthy sperm in male humans. Perhaps once those kinds of effects are, are better known, we would start to be more concerned about noise in general and then hopefully noise and its impacts on other species as well. Professor Kirsten Paris from the School of Ecosystem and Forest Sciences at the University of Melbourne, bringing this edition of Future Tense to a close. We also heard from Tin Oberman at University College London, Erica Walker from the Brown University School of Health in the United States, and Nina Krauss, a neurobiologist at Northwestern University. Next time on the program... A provocation of sorts, as we meet the climate change winners, the industries and countries likely to benefit from global warming. 
The Arctic is feeling climate change, you know, like everyone else. Global warming happens at four times the speed of the global average in the Arctic region, seven times the speed at some places. And this is, of course, causing a lot of challenges. There are also some, I'm careful to call it opportunities, but there are some opportunities for everyone living there, both for the local communities and also for businesses. So the amount of new farming land that it opens up in terms of climate suitability is really staggering, more than equivalent to the current Corn Belt in the U.S., for instance. The lower income parts of the world we find are those that are likely to be hit hardest if we continue to crank up the temperature. On the other end of the spectrum, in very cold countries, so think Norway, Russia, Canada, we actually see evidence of some potential benefits. We see that, at least historically, in years that are warmer on average, these economies tend to perform a little bit better. Benefits from the global climate crisis, real or illusionary? That's next on Future Tense. The first, by the way, in our new series of programs for 2023. Thanks, as always, to my co-creator, Karen Savanovitz. I'm Anthony Fennell. Cheers. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.